You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs bestowing life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Welcome back, everyone, here for our, well, what is it? It's the third Sunday of Pascha of Easter. It's the second Sunday. Depends on how you count it. Two I know, it keeps, like, throwing me off. I keep thinking... Well, the if, second you count, third... if you count Pascha, if you count Easter as one, right. then this is three. Yes. You got Correct. that figured out? Okay. Yeah. So technically speaking, third Sunday of Easter, we're taking a look, continuing a look at the resurrection appearances of Christ. So Annie, Mitchell, how are you doing today? I am doing great, Father Hezekiah. How are you? Well, you know, it's spring. It's the sun is out. The flowers are blooming. The grass is green. Could it get any better? And Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus has risen from the dead. Yeah. Indeed. So let's give let's start with our biblical passages here, Annie. All right. So once again, because we're going in chronological order, we will start with the gospel today, which is Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. The responsorial psalm is Psalm 16. Mm-hmm. The first reading, which we will be looking at afterwards, is Acts chapter 2. We got a setup verse in verse 14, and then we'll be reading verses 22 through 33. And the epistle is the first letter of St. Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. There we have it. So here we are in Luke chapter 24. Ready to travel to Emmaus today, Father? Get out your Bibles, guys. Luke chapter 24. Mm-hmm. We're going to Emmaus. Let me know when you're ready. How far is Emmaus? We got, we got to get our geography down before we even start. Oh, you think so? That was going to be my first question to you was... Oh, where is Emmaus? Where is Emmaus? What's 60 stadia from Jerusalem? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> You don't know what stadia are. No, I do not. Therefore, 60 doesn't matter, but uh, or doesn't mean anything. So we got to figure this out. We got to understand what's going on here, but we're going to have to paint the picture after we read the gospel text. So let's jump in here. Luke chapter 24, verse 13 through 35. All right, here we go. That very day, the first day of the week, two of Jesus's disciples were going to a village seven miles from Jerusalem called Emmaus. Oh, well, then. Well, that helps. Oh, that helps. Okay. <laughs> Thank That's you, English translation. <laughs> so the, okay. Can we first, let's just a little principles, because this is what we're all about, not giving homilies, although oh, sometimes I admit it, I get on a kick and give a homily. But our goal here, or our, our, what it are supposed to be our goal, is that uh, to give you those basic things of, of like the biblical exegesis principles, right? Mm-hmm. First one would be read the text more closely, Annie. Look, right? Yes. Read the text more closely. Yes. But no. <laughs> Because um, because there's that old line that every translator is a traitor. That is mm-hmm. that, that you're not. No one's going to translate exactly word for word because first of all, you're dealing with inflected languages and things like that. You could never have a coherent passage coming from the Greek text or the Hebrew text right. uh, into English as a word to word because the word order is all different and also words will come into other languages and concepts or concepts will come in as words. And so every translator is an impossible job. They call every translator a traitor. So here's a good example of this. Um, Our translator today doesn't actually translate. He interprets. He interprets or he does what I was just about to do, which is write how far is Emmaus from Jerusalem so I can give you the technical answer. As I was typing that, he gave it to us, right? Because mm-hmm. he he did the same thing. He looks it up on Google and it's like, okay, here's so no. 
but uh <laughs> yeah that, that's it so 60 stadia 10.4 to 12 kilometers sorry 10 11 12 kilometers then you got to type in how far is a kilometer right but but there you go in your new american bible they actually put it there for you in that case it's actually helpful right yeah stadia is not all that helpful there's nothing magic about words that you don't understand that's yeah. an important thing there's nothing magic about words that are incomprehensible language is meant to be comprehended so when language ceases to be comprehensible it's no longer rational mm-hmm. it may be rational to one person but it's not it's not to the other right which yeah. is why i'm going to get on a little hobby horse which is why the liturgy of the church in the in the latin west was translated from greek into latin now you still you, you, how do i know there was in greek well because there's evidence of that but also don't you say in your liturgy kyrie eleison kyrie eleison is greek it it's part of the original ancient liturgy of the of the latin church which was in greek because greek was the spoken language of the people but as greek ceased to be the spoken language of the people and latin took on that role then the church translated the liturgy from greek into the vulgar language Mm-hmm. Thus, the Vulgate, the vulgar language of the people, which was Latin, which was the Latin was like today it would be the difference between high English and uh, what's going on in the streets of Sacramento. OK, <laughs> yeah. which is not English it's jive. Latin <laughs> is Greek jive. <laughs> okay? <laughs> I'm kidding. But um, but it's important that we understand what is being said so that we can comprehend, we can we can rational, we can think through it and, and so on. Okay, that's sure. my hobby horse. Um, but go ahead and give us our translator's interpretation. Pick it up. Let's start with verse one again. Go ahead. Yeah, let's just start. Yeah. That very day, the first day of the week, two of Jesus's disciples were going to a village seven miles from Jerusalem called Emmaus, and they were conversing about all the things that had occurred. And it happened that while they were conversing and debating, Jesus himself drew near and walked with them but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him he asked them what are you discussing as you walk along they stopped looking downcast one of them named cleopas said to him in reply are you the only visitor to jerusalem who does not know of the things that have taken place there in these days and he replied to them what sort of things They said to him, the things that happened to Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers both handed him over to a sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And beside all this, it is now the third day since this took place. Some women from our group, however, have astounded us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, and they came back and reported that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who announced that he was alive. Then some of those with us went to the tomb and found things just as the women had described, but they did not see, but him they did not see. And he said to them, oh, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets spoke. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them what referred to him in all the scriptures. As they approached the village to which they were going, he gave the impression that he was going on farther. But they urged him, stay with us for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And it happened that while he was with them at table, he took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them. With that, their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he spoke to us on the way and opened the scriptures to us? So they set out at once and returned to Jerusalem, where they found gathered together the eleven and those with them who were saying, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. 
Then the two recounted what had taken place on the way and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. This is really an incredible story. Every like every time you you listen to it or every time you read it. So we got well where Emmaus, do we know exactly where Emmaus is? I mean, I know it's seven miles outside oh, yeah. of Jerusalem, but there's a whole seven mile radius there. So, well, Annie, it's a good question where Emmaus is. And, uh, you know, with a lot of the biblical sites, there's actually debate, right? There's there's archaeological digs that are going on, people, and a lot of that stuff's pretty cool, actually. Archaeology in the Holy Land is like, is like a current event. Like they yeah. are literally digging right now. And they're discovering stuff. So you, which you, you go to Jerusalem, for example, my favorite thing to do when I'm in the Holy Land is actually go underground because you go back to the time of Jesus and you get to walk around underground and like stuff that's been dug out. It's, it's mind blowing. But Emmaus is a good example. There's, there's debate as to its location, but the, the something of a consensus is this location, what they call Emmaus Nicopolis, which is Northwest of Jerusalem, just about, I don't know, seven miles right 70 miles away from Jerusalem. 60 stadia it doesn't stadia. really matter you know but it's there and it's good this is a good thing right this gives us an example of a reason why we should always have our bible maps in our bible case so you can look it up and just get a sense of it because we're looking at the resurrection accounts we want to be able to get inside the story we want to be able to get in there you want to be walking with these guys right Right. Um, I mean, I'll tell you, I know, you know, it'd be really cool. Walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, right? It's only seven miles. You can do that. And then to be studying the scriptures as you're walking, right? Wouldn't that oh, be cool? Man, yeah. I mean, that's the guy. Is really, it's, it's, but you can, what's, what's cool is that you can do that now, kind of online. You can go out and do research. So I'm going to encourage all of our participants here. When you run across something like this, especially if you don't have Bible maps, even if you do have Bible maps, you can start looking around on the on Google. And you're you're in a new world. Like it, this couldn't have existed. Be you know what twenty years ago you couldn't have done this. You can get on and you can actually go search and find out the latest discoveries. They just did just four years ago. They had a major archaeological find that that highlighted this this event. And you can just you know all of this helps paint the picture. That's the point. I bet there are people on YouTube that have like walked the path and just videotaped it. You can, you can do Google streets of, of the old city of Jerusalem. I love doing this and you walk around Jerusalem in Google. Nice. And it's not like walking around Jerusalem, but it's, if you, if you're not going there, or maybe if you've been there before, but you don't remember where you were, you can go and tour those locations again. You know, because they're they're yours. And um, I was just doing this. I was walking through Jerusalem streets because I'm about to lead a, an ICC group over there. And um, and, uh, you know, I got all these places. I know I can like touch that wall. I've done, I've touched that wall before. I've, I've opened that door before and I walked through the streets of Jerusalem. So you have technology on your side on this one. Go and do it. And uh, it'll open up a whole new study of the Bible for you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So just to make sure that we have our bearings here, this is happening on the day of the resurrection, correct? Yeah. So this is the evening of that first day. So let's take a look a little bit closer. Look, what, what's our first verse here of our passage that we're looking at, Annie? It says uh, uh, verse 13. Verse 13. Yeah. 24 verse 13. So that very day. Okay. Well, what very day? Well, 24 verse 1. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices. This is the first day. That's that's Pascha. That's Easter. Right. And then you're going to follow that through to verse 13. That's an important question, Annie. It's important for all of us. As we were talking about last week, the timing of the resurrection, what happened, when it happened is important. And I have for you a little thing here from Bargel Pixner. There's so much here. And you know what? I just have open to this passage about the eighth day, eight days later, which is when, which is when Thomas puts his hand in his side, right? right, right. This may be going back a little bit to last week, this week, next week, as we're looking at all these resurrectional appearances. And I'll just, I'll just read this to you from Barshall Picture. Fascinating. According to the sequence of feasts, as the Pharisees and temple priests understood them from the precepts of the Torah, on this first immediate day of Passover, the first sheaves of grain harvest were brought to the temple. 
waved there before the altar and presented as offerings of the first crop of the year. This is how the ordinance of the, the Pentateuch was understood. Verse, this is Leviticus chapter 23, verse 15 through 16. From the day after Sabbath, let's turn there. Let's just turn there so everybody's got it. Leviticus 23, verse 15. Leviticus 23, verse 15. Okay. Okay. And you shall count from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheep of wave offering, seven full weeks shall be they be count, counting 50 days to the morrow after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a cereal offering of new grain to the Lord. Okay, so there's in maybe very shorthand terms, this whole prescription that he's talking about, and this is the harvest. Now, you got to think about this on that natural level. Now, I'm standing out here. I'm in California, okay? I was just walking out in the parking lot. Cal I mentioned California because the weather here is very similar to the Holy Land. So it's really cool during times, festival times in our liturgical cycle, what Jesus was seeing, what the apostles were experiencing and celebrating is what's going on out here. So when like, for example, here, the spring harvest of barley, barley is the first thing to come out of the ground and it's the first thing to be harvested, right? Yeah. And so it's during this time of year, if I walk out there right now, I was just walking out there and what's blowing in the wind? All that first crop coming up of the kind of the wheat, no, it's weeds, but you know, sure. it's wild wheat if you will. And it's all right now, it's all blowing in the wind right now. It's kind of silvery look cool. yeah. and it's all ready. So this is what they did at, at the spring at Passover. They would harvest that first crop of barley. They would bring it to the Lord. It was the first offering, first take the, it's the tithe, right? They take the thing, they bundle it up, they take it in the temple and they do a wave offering to the Lord of the green, fresh grass, right? Then 50 days later, they take in the full wheat harvest, okay, and they bake bread loaves out of it, and that is then waved to the Lord. Now, wow. you're, I hope you're thinking of Pentecost and the church mm -hmm. and the baking of the loaf and the descent of fire. That's all intentional. We'll have time to talk about that, but here's what, here's what Pixner says. The sheaf offering is called the Omer in Hebrew, and the entire period of counting is called the counting of the Omer. The feast at the end of this period is called the Feast of Weeks because it concludes the seven weeks of counting. The words of the Torah count from the day, quote, count from the day after the Sabbath were interpreted in different ways. The Sadducees began counting the 50 days of this uh, on the Sunday following the Sabbath within the Passover week. That's Easter. The Pharisees considered the first day of Passover on which the Seder is celebrated in Hebrew. Feast days are called uh, called Sabbath to be the Sabbath and began counting from the first immediate day, as is done by the Jews to this day. Since in that year, Passover fell on a Sabbath, there was no dispute between Sadducees and Pharisees, and both groups could perform the feast of sheaf waving without any dispute. Now, this is this is also called the, the feast of the first fruits. It's a first crop offer, right? Now, St. Paul is going to call Jesus the first fruit. Yeah. Right, because Jesus is that sheet, that barley offering, right? The first of many that will be finally harvested at Pentecost. Wow. Okay. Yeah. For the Essenes, the Sabbath following the seven days of Passover was the day that was meant in the Torah. They began to count the Omer on Sunday, five days after their Passover week was over. Con consequently, the Essenes celebrated their feast of weeks one week later than the Pharisees and Sadducees. Since the Essenes did not take any part in the temple service, they probably performed a ceremony similar to the Omer offering within their own community. Hmm. Jesus appears, right? Eight days. In, yeah. That's what I was saying last week. In the neighborhood of Jesus' supper, supper room, where the, Essenes, where, the, where the Essenes counting was predominant, they assembled after the Passover week for the Feast of Sheep Waving. So this is all then considered in that context. I don't have time to go on with more of Pixner, but I would encourage you to go to the Institute website and to participate in the study that I did called Appearances of the Resurrected Lord, in which I get more in detail about this and the connection between the Jesus's uh, uh, resurrectional appearances and this counting of the feast days of the Jews and how Jesus appears as the fulfillment 
of what they're doing in preparation. Wow. wow, it's almost like God planned it that way. Yeah, isn't that strange? Huh, huh. Who would have thought? Some more questions about this. So there are these two disciples. Is it just curious? Is there any idea of who? So we know that Cleopas is one of them, right? But the other disciple doesn't get named. Is there like any kind of debate, or do we know who that disciple is? Yes. So here's I'm gonna I'm gonna give you another talk to listen to. But okay. the basic is this is that it is believed that Cleophas, Cleophas and uh, uh, the man Alpheus that we hear about in the gospel, the same guy. Okay. Married to Mary, one yeah. of the Marys, right? Who's one there of the Marys the at the foot of the cross. I was wondering that. Yeah. At the foot of the cross and at the, it goes to the tomb to bring spices and so forth to anoint the body, yeah. right? So she's one of, she's one of the, and this is her husband who was one of the 70 by tradition and a cousin of saint joseph okay wow and father of james who becomes bishop of jerusalem, jerusalem. okay yeah. who is also one of the 70 all right now you can go and listen to my talks on the lives of the 12 apostles in which i go through all these family connections very confusing but i think for me the most important thing is First of all, that we do know who they were, but the, the tradition the church tells us that. And then to know that they were disciples of the Lord. So they were they were following him. They were not part of the 12, but nevertheless, they were in close contact. Thus, it makes sense of why they were in such distress, right? And why their, their, their language might appear a little strange to us. Well, he was a prophet, mighty in work and yeah. word, right? He was a prophet. And, and for Christians, right, mm, it makes us a little uncomfortable. The Jehovah's Witnesses, right? You know? Yeah. No, it, these guys were trying to deal with who this guy was. I mean, the apostles didn't even believe. The apostles were still struggle, struggling, right? Look at Matthew. Look at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Look at, uh, let's say, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. 16? Yeah. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Now this is after the resurrection. This is after he's appeared to them in the upper room. This is after he blew his you know, breath on them and received the Holy Spirit. This is after Thomas puts to, his... They're and going they're, back they, to fish. <laughs> and they're going to Galilee. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Hmm. Okay, so, you know, when we're reading about these, these disciples in the road to Emmaus, being uncertain about what's going on well i mean gee whiz you know snap out of it christians you just heard news that some women told you that he's risen what what people don't rise from the dead oh yeah there was a lazarus thing but i'm not even sure what was going on there i don't know that was kind of strange you know uh, yeah. so that's only um, in the gospel of john and it's well they didn't have the gospel of john in front of them i know, I know. I'm you know kidding. what i mean it's all hearsay they're like really okay so okay so fine they're 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 struggling in their in their faith but but uh what was your question annie well i was just asking about you know who they were really but my yeah. next question is how was it that they didn't recognize him mm, this happens all the time doesn't it yeah like well i guess it happened to mary I mean, magdalene that morning what right? happened even but even like to, to thomas the apostles he says look just put your hand aside it's me okay right mm -hmm. so you know this happens regularly in the gospel and especially after the resurrection why is it well there's first of all there's the dimness of our of our intellect sure um but but weighed down by lack of faith yeah mm -hmm. but there's more. St. Augustine has a beautiful insight on this, and I'm going to share it with you. He was walking with them along the road like a companion and was himself the leader. Of course, he was seen, but he wasn't recognized, for their eyes were restrained, as we heard, so that they wouldn't recognize him. They weren't restrained so that they wouldn't see him, but they were held so that they wouldn't recognize him ah yes brothers and sisters but where did the lord wish to be recognized 
in the breaking of the bread. It was for our sake that he didn't want to be recognized anywhere but there, because we weren't going to see him in the flesh, and yet we were going to eat his flesh. So if you're a believer, any of you, if you're not called a Christian for nothing, if you don't come to church pointlessly, if you listen to the word of God in fear and hope, you may take comfort in the breaking of bread. The Lord's absence is not absence. Have faith in the one you cannot see is with you. Those two, even when the Lord was talking to them, did not have faith because they didn't believe he had risen, nor did they have any hope that he could rise from again. They had lost faith, lost hope. They were walking along, dead, with Christ alive. They were walking along, dead, with life itself. Life was walking along with them, but in their hearts, life had not yet been restored. Isn't wow. that powerful? You got to love St. Augustine. Wow. That is so powerful. I wanted to ask about the significance of the fact that they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. Jesus clearly wants that to be an important moment. We, we talked about it a little bit last week, right? About there, But I actually found a beautiful little quote from St. Augustine. It says, no one should doubt that his being recognized in the breaking of bread is, no one should doubt that it is the, the, the sacrament, the Eucharist, right? Yeah. Which brings us together in recognizing him. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I think that it, I would, I would just say that based upon that earlier quotation from Augustine, that they were held back from recognizing him so that we might recognize him. Right. And so, so the Lord allows their, there's their, the dimming of their, of their spiritual vision. So as to give us spiritual eyes, but then at the moment of the breaking their eyes are open to see, which is, which is so powerful that the Eucharistic gifts allow us because it's communion with the Lord union with him gives us a vision as he sees things, right? Mm -hmm. It transforms the whole person. And certainly that takes place for these uh, men on the road to Emmaus. It, you know, Annie, I, I know we, from a timing standpoint, we need to move on, but, but um, I just want to say a word about the Bible study they had. Well, I was going to, I wanted to ask you, do you think Jesus was using your notes from Swords and Serpents? No, I think he was using his notes <laughs> from Swords and Serpents. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no. Maybe I mean, you it's were really... using his notes, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I would just say that. Um, okay, I, I'm gonna. He's juicy. The fathers of the church. You know, that's where you got to go. So good. So Saint Ambrose so says there ought to be a concurrence of the old and the new, as in the case of the old and the new testament. Let our food be knowledge of the patriarchs. Let our minds banquet on the prophetic books of the prophets. When we oftentimes as Christians, I think we. We look at the Gospels as, as the as the heart of the Bible, right? It's the most important part. It's what you read the most. It's its core. But I, I think rather than talking about it as the heart of the Bible, which in many ways it is, it, rather, I think you need to look at it as the, the last chapter of the book. Yeah. Without which the rest of the book doesn't make any sense. I mean, imagine the final concluding scenes to a great movie, right? Like you cut off the last 10 minutes. Well, yep. you know. But, but but my point about that is that the whole of the Old Testament allows us to, to read that last chapter or see that last 10 minutes, right? Without, without that, then the last 10 minutes means is kind of what? What? Comes out of nowhere. Yeah. It comes out. Of, he, he, he rose from the dead. It's deus ex machina, right? It's, yeah. it's the old, you know, God out of the machine idea, right? Like, you know, but no, that this, that Jesus's resurrection is, to be seen in terms of fulfillment, fulfillment number one of the expectation of mankind, the heart and center of the desire of man is to live. We're yeah. not made for death. This is why when you stand at the tomb of a loved one, people weep. Yeah, they're distraught because we're not made for this. And then we try to we try to bring rationality to it, bring a reason to it. Death is irrational. Sin is irrational. It's the breaking of rationality. When we try to answer, we ask the question, why? Why does this happen? Because we don't see rationality in it. It's not supposed to be this way. 
My mom wasn't supposed to die when I was nine years old. That's not right. So we've, number one, from a natural standpoint, the desire of man, but then based on that natural standpoint, also the biblical revelation, starting in the book of Genesis, that death is the greatest offense thrown in the face of the living God. We were not meant for that. And, and yet through our sin, something which God did not create entered in and life became mortal. It became known, life became known by the attribute of death, mortal, it's a strange word, isn't it? Mortal life? Yeah. Mortal life, death life. That's what we live is death life. And this is what Jesus has come to confront and destroy. This is what Jesus has come to give us back is, is what we were made for life again. And therefore Jesus kind of, you know, goes through the old Testament to show what must take place highlighting. Of course, we could go to how many passages in Isaiah and the suffering servant and going back to the book of Genesis and all these things. And their hearts were burning within them, right? Jesus gave them heartburn on the way to Emmaus. And and he gives us a a huge lesson. So many have said, rightly so, like, that's a Bible study that you'd want to attend, right? That's like the Bible study of Bible studies. But he actually gives us the fundamental principles of Bible study. He doesn't just give them passages. He does what our goals are here at SGR, and he gives them the tools of interpretation, right? Mm -hmm. He gives them the things necessary. And what is that tool? And we're about to see it in in the reading from Acts of the Apostles, and that is that good New Testament Bible study is Old Testament Bible study. Yes. <laughs> you know, and we how oftentimes we don't do that. We read through a gospel text or whatever, whatever passage, and we don't allow that passage to fill us from the Old Testament with all of those things by which the people there were seen, right? The, the people standing there with Jesus are Old Testament people. They didn't have the New Testament. They had the writings of the prophets, the writings of Moses to work with. And it's through that lens that they, they have a worldview, right? And that worldview allows them to see the things God is doing today because they recognize his f- fingerprint from yesterday. That's the biggest problem that Christians face today is that we don't recognize his past work. Therefore, we don't recognize his current work. Many people leave the church I think because they don't really understand it as fulfillment and understand it as fulfillment. You have to go back at a solid foundation in the old Testament. And that's what Jesus does for them. He goes through all of those passages, which is the whole of the old Testament, which point to himself so that they can then see him. That's their, that was their problem, right? They actually knew the old Testament. But they didn't see it. They weren't using it as a lens to see what's going on. And that's what Jesus gives them. He puts the glasses on, right? You can see through there. And that, my brothers and sisters, is typology. That the things of the Old Testament are prefigurements, preparations for the things of the new. And that's not like, um, that's not like uh, similar occurrences. Yes, there's similarities, right? you know, whatever, uh, crossing of the Red Sea is like baptism. There's similarities. But more than similarities, there's a unity of being. There's an ontological unity between the old and the new. What do I mean by that? It's the same God acting. And what he did then, he does now. He doesn't change what he does. And so we should expect that to, that divine action to take on similar um, uh, created or material revelations, you see? And so you are experiencing the same reality that took place then and is fulfilled now. That's what Daniel Lu says in his Bible, in the liturgy. I'm looking for my Cardinal Jean Daniel Lu book. But he says it's, this, it's the same divine activity taking place then and taking place now. This is why St. Paul can say that they drank from Christ in the Old Testament. Yeah. They drank from Christ. They, what? Right? That's because it's the same one acting. Yeah. I hope that makes sense. And and and, and that's what Jesus shows them. Absolutely. That's the Bible study Jesus does with them. Sorry, anybody. Well, I was going to say, like, just um, anybody that's gone through swords and serpents with you has had a glimpse of that. How many of us 
feel our hearts burning within us when when somebody can lead us and connect the dots in that way it's incredible. well that's nice annie but don't give me a messiah complex it's oh no no no, no. <laughs> well it's i don't mean Jesus. it that way it's just like it's, i know <laughs> the i just mean that it's it is true when when you start to recognize when you start to see like you were just saying I mean, we all have, I think anybody that's that's gone through a Bible study like that, whether it's yours or or some other Bible study in that or way. Or any other teacher in the ICC, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, the, I, I know because we've seen testimonies from ICC uh, family members who have, have said that this is, you know, oh, I've been through how many years of Catholic school and I never learned things like mm, this. And you yeah. can feel it. You really mm. feel it in your heart. Absolutely. So we do need to move on. We got to get to Acts of the Apostles and the responsorial psalm is Psalm 16. Which one do you want to do first? Because, well, you know, they, they say, speak to each other. They, they do. And I'll just say one, one word about Psalm 16 um, Lord, you will show us the path of life. And this is very beautiful when we're looking at the gospel reading, the road to Emmaus, that we can read it from the outside, or we can stand in the story and realize that the, the revelation of the resurrected Christ to the, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus was more than walking alongside them and showing them things on the outside. He opened their eyes from the inside yes the road the path to emmaus uh is is a, a, the path of our life which finds its fulfillment in the eucharistic gifts and there it becomes now not only the fulfillment of typology but another spiritual sense of scripture and that is the moral sense there's much to be said and meditated upon by the road to emmaus those who are leaving Jerusalem, who are doubting, who are lacking faith, finding themselves going further and further away from the one who is risen from the dead. And then what do we learn? That Jesus comes and finds them in their, in their darkness, in their lack of faith, right? And well, reveals what an himself. What a cool thing to be, to yeah. think about in light of the fact that, you know, this is speaking to the new Catholics as well, mm. the neophytes who yes. are probably losing like their their white garments they're not wearing them anymore on this uh yeah. third sunday of easter maybe That's they got a, a little point. soiled you know it's a good point annie I, so we, you know there's there's a little bit of lexio divina if you will of a meditation get in there and walk with the lord and then allow that experience of going to a mass to be applied to your life and then be willing to be found and then to receive Holy Communion, to confess to the Lord those words of the Father of the, of the Son who is a demoniac. Lord, I believe, help my, help my unbelief, right? And then to, re, then to come to Holy Communion and be drawn back to Jerusalem, to be drawn back to the heart of the church, to be drawn back to Christ and to have our eyes open to see through his eyes once again. You know, the, all of our Lenten seasons are about it, that, and it's to be fulfilled now in our life to begin to realize, as I said before, Lent isn't about discovering our holiness, it's about discovering our lack of holiness, it's about yeah. discovering our lack of ability to come to know the Lord. Um, but, but now we open our hearts to be found by him. Yeah. So we just pray that, that psalm, Lord, you will show us the path of life. Lord, show me the path of life. And, uh, and I, I know where, I know where its goal is, which is always going to be communion with you. And this is going to show up in our first reading, actually Acts chapter two, we're going to start with verse 14, and then we skip down to verse 22. Mm -hmm. If you are following along in your Bible, are you there father? Yep. Okay. Here we go. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and proclaimed you who are Jews indeed all of you staying in jerusalem let this be known to you and listen to my words you who are israelites hear these words jesus the nazarene was a man commended to you by god with mighty deeds wonders and signs which god worked through him in your midst as you yourselves know 
This man delivered up by the set plan and foreknowledge of God, you killed using lawless men to crucify him. But God raised him up, releasing him from the throes of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me. With him at my right hand, I shall not be disturbed. Therefore, my heart has been glad and my tongue has exalted. My flesh too will dwell in hope because you will not abandon my soul to the netherworld, nor will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. My brothers, one can confidently say to you about the patriarch David that he died and was buried and his tomb is in our midst to this day. But since he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that neither was he abandoned to the netherworld, nor did his flesh see corruption. God raised this Jesus. Of this, we are all witnesses. Exalted at the right hand of God, he received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father and poured him forth as you see and hear. Can we just bask in how like incredible Peter has become here? Like, wow. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty, yeah, it is pretty awesome. You can only really experience the, the power of this preaching of the gospel when you're standing. I, I the experience of standing in the upper room with Israeli guards oh wow standing there and i and and when we take people to the holy land of course we we chant the gospel out loud we sing it um and to be to be saying those words that well you killed the messiah you, were, you, you know and uh, it's very powerful uh and then but but then there's there's hope that's given to them but it is a very powerful and very stirring but again you have to be inside we can read these as words or we can realize that peter's peter's out on the on the edge i mean they they just they just killed jesus right yeah yes he's risen from the dead but now the rea- like what's going to happen with me right and he gets out there and he just says you killed the messiah <laughs> Peter's Peter's full of some some mm, yeah something something good there full of the Holy Spirit I think absolutely I would say okay so um in terms of context from last week we were actually like we're actually kind of moving back in time because we were in Acts 242 last week you know they devoted themselves to the 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 teaching of the apostles and the breaking of the bread and the Mm. prayers so um just to again get our bearings here what what is happening right now what is this well chapter you got it right there acts chapter two you guys all know this is pentecost day right so this is where the the spirit has come down upon the apostles those in the upper room and what's going on there in pen it's pentecost it's it's the feast of weeks we just read that in, in leviticus and so the place is now for the first time since passover right passover happened and now we're 50 days later, this is the next great feast that all of the males, if at all possible, all the men, Jews, would journey to Jerusalem for this feast. So the place was inundated, which is why there's all these people there, right? Yeah, I was going to ask ch- that. Yeah. Chapter 2, verse 9, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, Resident Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, and Phrygia. If you go to Jerusalem today, this is all, that's what's going on. Everybody's coming there to see what's going on and there are people from all over the world and uh and that's what's that's what's happening and now they begin to speak in tongues but please we need to clarify what this is and i also want to talk about a couple verses that were that were skipped here in our lectionary reading but what is a tongue it's a the the italian tongue the um, english tongue it's a language not babble not nonsense it's quite the opposite of nonsense um, and so the tradition of the church is that uh, on the day of Pentecost, each apostle received the language by which they were to evangelize, to evangelize the world. 
mm-hmm. and to evangelize the people they're going to be sent to evangelize, right? And so uh, that was the gift they received so that each of these could hear and understand in their own language, according to the preaching of the apostles, according to the preaching that they were proclaiming there. So then in verse 14, Peter stands up and says, we're not drunk. <laughs> okay, yep. we're, we're not, uh, because that's what they're guessing, right? This is only the third hour. What's the third hour, Annie? I don't know. What is the third hour? Okay, so it, well, it, it comes up a lot in the in the in the scriptures, but also in your in the office, right? In the um, in your liturgy of oh, the like hours, terse? the third hour is yeah. the hour third hour since sunrise. So sunrise. it's like nine in the morning. He's like, "Look, we're not drinking vodka at nine in the morning." Okay, yeah. maybe the Russians do that, but we don't. I'm just kidding. They are Look, filled I'll, with new wine. Yeah, it does. I'm gonna get ru- hate Haiti all the Russians. No, <laughs> I love the Russian people, but uh, n- nine o'clock in the morning, we don't do that. But but this is to, to show you what that what was to be fulfilled. And so now St. Peter does for them what Jesus did for the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He goes back to the Old Testament. Okay. Hmm. And so he goes back to the book of Joel. And in the book of Joel, you can turn there in your Bibles, a little hard to find, but it's one of your minor prophets there, just before Maccabees, after Hosea, and before Amos. And we're in Joel chapter one, chapter two, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even upon the men servants and the maid servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. I will give portents signs in the heavens. And on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. Remember the earthquake at the, uh, right? The, the sun was darkened and the earth did quake, right? Yeah. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, and in, well, Mount Zion is one of the hills of Jerusalem, but okay. And in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among survivors shall be those whom the Lord, who they call. And then as we, to chapter three, verse 18, and in that day, right, when this happens, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. And the hills flow with milk, and all this, and all the streets, beds of Jerusalem shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water from the valley of Shittim. Okay, so there's there's this baptismal imagery, there's this wine imagery, there's the gift of the Spirit mixed all mixed together. And Saint and Saint Peter's like, didn't you ever read Joel? This is what he's talking about. So we're not drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. We're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You just don't understand what I'm talking about because I'm preaching in whatever, Zwahili to the Zwahilian <laughs> over there. Okay? And you think I'm drunk. I'm not drunk at all. I'm just, I'm, I'm filled with the spirit of God. And when that happens, Joel said, this is what it's going to look like. And lo and behold, this is what it looks like. So notice what, what Peter does. I'm about to get to why I'm keep saying this. He goes back to the Old Testament and gives a good, solid Bible study from the Old Testament, and not just from Joel, because now he's going to go and he's going to say, "Look, remember what David said, right? Yeah. This happens over and over again in the Acts of the Apostles. When it comes time to preach, they preach from the Bible. What a concept, right? Imagine. So I want to talk to our our ICC friends and family, brothers and sisters here gathered. There's a lot of you run Bible studies and things like that. And you're always looking for the next new fashioned Bible study to come out, right? Uh, so that you can do it in your parish and unpackage, open up the package and, and so forth like that. And people could you know, get upset with the Institute. Why don't you have packaged up things that we can, you know, unbox over here at the parish and have a parish program. Programs don't save anybody, but the word of God does. Yeah, and so we got to be studying the scriptures and um, becoming familiar with the Old Testament, just familiarity, so that we can see properly. And that's what Peter does. He does, gives them, he lights their hearts on fire by preaching the Old Testament in light of Christ, calling people to repentance. 
you know, I was sitting uh, recently with a group of bishops while I was standing and they were sitting, which is, you know, uh, okay. So, so, and they said, you know, what you're telling us, Father, looks very interesting and, and, uh, and uh, very successful and very beautiful. But look, let's talk about reality. In our parishes, the parishes are getting smaller and the communities are dying. But what you're saying is your program's growing. There's this, the ICC and the other work you're doing and things like that is all looks good. But, but in the ground, a lot of the parishes are suffering and dying. I says, yeah, you want to know why? And I didn't say this, but basically I said, because you're not preaching like Peter preached, which with boldness and without concern whether they're going to kill you or not, totally striving for the most like guys in their face. You killed the Messiah. You murdered him. But you know what? God's more powerful than your death and your hatred because he's risen from the dead. And that's what we have to get back to, my brothers and sisters, is preaching with conviction the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the resurrection. How often we hear homilies that don't mention the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the central mystery the, without which there is no gospel. There's no good news unless Jesus is risen from the dead. But Jesus has risen from the dead. And that's why we must preach the, the resurrection, constantly telling people about the truth that you were not made for death. That death has been destroyed. And if you are in Christ, then you are in life. And you have no fear of death anymore. That's what St. Peter talks about. And that's the boldness of his preaching. That's what's amazing about what he says. And he gets in their face. And he doesn't mince words. He doesn't say it's okay what they did. But he tells them about the power of God over their sin, that God's power in his life is more powerful than their hatred. My dad always used to say to me, I was frustrated with people or difficulties in school, kill them, kill their hatred with your love. He'd say, kill their hatred with your love. Fill their, that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. And that's what we're, we're called to do in our, our, our life of repentance, our, our, that's that moral sense that we apply to the road to Emmaus, is go out there and to become lovers. Because love, the giving of life, has the power of resurrection. Father Alexander Schmemann says, very powerful thing he says, he says, he says, he says, resurrection is not a divine power in itself, but it is the power of love. Because love is the giving of life. And so if I bestow life on the other, they live. Now, God is love. So therefore, it is a divine power. But you see the point. Yeah. You have the power of resurrection because you're a Christian, because you have God's love within you. Pour it out that others might also live and rise from the dead. I'm completely off my thing. I sit on us to give homilies. I'm giving my Jesus is risen homily. Annie, I'm coming back you're to channeling you. channeling Peter, Father. That's what you're doing. Okay. Channeling Peter. So channel Peter a little more and explain to me what he's saying about David here, because he's quoting the responsorial Psalm, right? Correct. Psalm 16. Well, yeah. So you got it. Number one, you've got to go. Th thank you. Annie, for pointing out that the church actually put the proper responsorial Psalm in there, which will be missed by most. And they put it in there because of this reading. Exactly. So Psalm, Psalm 16, beginning with verse eight. And following is the text that Peter quotes. So what are you going to do, ICC friends and family? Go read a couple of the Psalms before and after it. At least read that whole Psalm, yes, to be able to get the whole, the whole picture. But the, the point of what he's making is that David, writing the Psalms, by the way, for those that doubt that David wrote the Psalms, you can argue with St. Peter. Because St. Peter believed he did, you know. But he says, he says, look. Look what David says. David says, and then he, he quotes it right there, that for, for that, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let thy holy one see corruption. But guys, David's bones are over there. The guy's deader than a doornail. He's been dead for a long time. So David, if the Psalms are true, couldn't have been speaking about himself. So who is he talking about? He's talking about the one who's risen from the dead. David prophesied the resurrection. You see how they just you know, forget 
whether David prophesied the resurrection, Peter's ability to go back to the Old Testament and use the Old Testament to reveal to those to the church the truth, to reveal to the Jews the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Foundational, and, and it's amazing. This is what we had to be doing in our churches, in our Bible studies, going back and doing this very thing. And that's what he says. It could, David couldn't have been talking about himself. Otherwise, he would have been a liar and the scriptures would have been wrong. Therefore, he must have been talking about the Messiah. So that's it, Andy. That's what he does. Um, and then the expectation follows. What's, what's beautiful is that they hear him in all of what he's trying to reveal to them. He actually does it. He accomplishes his Bible study. Their hearts begin burning within them, which is why 3,000 people are baptized in one day. Wow. Right. They hear him and they're like, oh, yeah, you're right about that. You're right. David couldn't have been talking about himself, even though we memorized that psalm. We always thought it was about David, but it can't be about David. And therefore, it must be about, oh, boy, David's son. David's son has come. Yes, Jesus is. Jesus was the one. And we killed wow. him. But there's good news. Yeah. Wow. And then Peter, just to, I don't know if there's anything else you want to talk about um, Acts of the Apostles before we look at the the epistle, but it's just like, okay, what do I do with this now that I'm a new Christian? And that's that's kind of what Peter's epistle addresses, I would say. In what way? Just talking about like- Oh, you mean the epistle? Yes, the epistle yeah. for the lectionary reading, of course. Yes, like, yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to ask something about Acts of the Apostles. So yes, no, absolutely. No, no, no. Is there anything else you want to say about no, Acts no. of the Apostles before no, we no, look no. at the we, epistle? We can go right to the epistle then. Let Peter continue talking to us. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is First Peter chapter 1, and we're starting with verse 17. Beloved, if you invoke as father him who judges impartially according to each one's works, Conduct yourselves with reverence during the time of your sojourning, realizing that you were ransomed from your feudal conduct, handed on by your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a spotless, unblemished lamb. He was known before the foundation of the world, but revealed in the final time for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Mm. I, you know, the, the, I'll just bring you back to the gospel reading and the discussion of these guys as they're walking and they start talking about Jesus. And they said, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. What does it mean to redeem something? I, I, I'm talking like in layman's jargon. What, if you're going to, what kind of thing, what do you redeem Annie? I redeem coupons. Exactly. At the grocery store. <laughs> exactly. Right. You take this thing, you take this thing, this, and you and you turn it in, and you get the goods. Right. Yep. You, you get, and so Jesus becomes our our our. He's our resurrection coupon. Right. He's our. He's, <laughs> yes. And so why? Because in him, our human nature rises from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is not miraculous in itself because he's God. Death can't control God. I mean, it just is not modern. So, so, the, so the great mystery of Jesus' resurrection, and this is a great mystery of all of the mysteries of the life of Jesus, is that it's not for Jesus. It's for us that he is, he is, he is risen from the dead. So he becomes, in him, he gives us what we need. He takes our human nature out of the tomb. Adam is restored in Christ. And now it's only a matter of us getting in there, right? Getting into Jesus, which is our baptism. And so this theme of redemption comes up again here in St. Peter's epistle. I know when we start talking in terms of redemption and being redeemed, we oftentimes set up, I think in our Western mind, kind of a courtroom type of a, a picture where God requires the blood of his son so that he can free Adam or, or give Adam his life back. But I, I think maybe it's more helpful to, to, to think in terms of the revealed nature of God as love. Yeah. As, as I keep saying, I've said it even today, that, that, that uh, no greater love has any man than to give his life for his friend. The blood of Christ he spilled upon the cross is his revelation of his, his, his undying love for us, the breadth and depth of his love for us. You know, in, in Jerusalem, the location of Adam's tomb 
is directly below the uh, directly below Golgotha. Saint Ephraim says that when Jesus willingly went to the cross and gave his life for us, he literally he literally drained and poured his blood his life giving blood on the skull of the dead Adam. Wow. And giving life back to Adam, he gave life to all of us. And this is what I think is so powerful and so so beautiful that we should be seen in the cross of Christ and in the resurrection. Um, there are two aspects of the same reality in which he pours his life into us. And in pouring as his life into us, we, with him now, gain what is in his blood, namely eternal life. That we now are risen from the dead with him, no longer to live in sin and in death. I mean, just encouraging word for the neophytes, the newly illumined, as are known in the East, and for all of us who made the journey of Lent. You know, it's, it's now a few weeks out, we get, start to get soft, we start to get weak, we start to return to our old ways. My brothers and sisters, don't go back there. You've been given a new life. Be strengthened by the holy mysteries, by the breaking of the bread, so that you can time and time and time again return to Jerusalem to glorify the one who is risen from the dead. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and to ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.